This episode is brought to you in part by Dr. Tony Evans, author of Kingdom Kindness. Learn how to become a countercultural force by reflecting God's kindness. Find this and other uplifting resources on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. Listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Sarah Welch Larson, and Kevin is off doing battle with a shadowy cabal of assassins across the globe right now. So, um, to replace him, we have brought in friend of the show, once and future guest, Abby Olchesi. Abby, welcome to Seeing and Believing. Hi, thank you for having me back. So delighted to have you here to talk about John Wick, about Walter Hill's The Warriors, which we'll be discussing in our watch list segment, um, and about masculinity and punching, which I feel like is our collective <laughs> expertise. Yeah, I think between the two of us, we have uh, we have a lot of uh, viewing experience and insight into the particular topic of men punching each other on film. <laughs> which should be uh, for a really good conversation. So why don't we go ahead and dive right on in. Um, first up, we are going to be reviewing John Wick Chapter 4, which is directed by Chad Stahelski. After narrowly escaping death at the end of the previous movie, hitman John Wick, played by Keanu Reeves, seeks a way to defeat the High Table, the shadowy cabal that rules over the global networks of assassins that John Wick is a part of. Wick has been wronged by the high table, and he wants out, but in order to do it, he's going to have to face off against countless enemies. Um, and so, Abby, when we were talking about reviewing John Wick Chapter 4, you referred to this as Abby's Parade of Boys, and I'm curious <laughs> to know, um, how does this movie kind of stand up at the end of that parade, and then how does it hold up as just part of the John Wick series as a whole for you? Oh, that's yeah. So um, I, I can't I can't unfortunately claim the uh, the concept of boys as purely my own. Um, that was the thing that Karen Hahn came up with a few years ago. And at the time I was I was insanely jealous because I definitely had boys and I was mad that I hadn't found a way to monetize it. But um, yeah, I have uh, I have a lot of uh, character actors in my own kind of personal Hall of Fame that I super love and love watching on screen. And uh, the John Wick movies as a whole have always had like a really good roster of Abby's boys. Um, this one might be like the crowning achievement <laughs> in terms oh, of yeah. the roster of Abby's boys. You've got uh, Keanu Reeves, you've got um, Ian McShane, obviously, mm -hmm. um, Donnie Yen coming in new here, Yuki Sonata also coming in for the first time this entry. Um, and uh, the late, great Lance Reddick, who, mm -hmm. um, when I previewed the film last week, was still with us. And then by the end of the week was not, shockingly and tragically. Um, mm -hmm. So I feel like the movie ends up in a surprising way being actually a really um, nice farewell for for him and his character um, mm -hmm. altogether. It, it makes an unintentional coda, which I really appreciate in hindsight. Um, but yeah, and in terms of Abby's Parade of Boys, it, it delivers. Everybody gets really good really good roles, really meaty roles. Oh, I forgot Clancy Brown. Clancy Brown is number one Abby's boy. Um, <laughs> and he is great in this. He's just, he's not got a huge role, but it's it's very much the kind of thing that you would hire Clancy Brown to do. Very mm -hmm. kind of gravitas heavy, like using the deepest range of his of his voice for most of the film, walking around in a really big, like wide brimmed dark hat. Like it's, it's perfect. All that stuff is perfect. Um, and in terms of it, where it sits for me in the the John Wick franchise, which is a, a series that I I love dearly, um, the first Super Yaki T-shirt that I ever bought was a John Wick shirt, and I only wear it when new John Wick movies come out or new Keanu movies come out. Mm -hmm. um, I can also wear it on Keanu's birthday. That's the those are the three. Um, but I think it's a it's a worthy entrant. It's really good. I uh, I think it solidifies for me that the back half of the series remains my favorite three and four. I think mm. I like the best followed by two and then one, um, which is not to say that I dislike any of them, but I think that's probably the order in which I might put them in, in order of preference. Oh, interesting. So we'll have to unpack that a little bit because I think I'm sort of the opposite of you. I appreciate mm. all of the John Wick movies. I really like them for their stunt work and for their sense of style and the fact that they're willing to just build this weird world of of shadowy assassins and everybody sort of being in on the secret that there's just this group of people out here who happen to be really good at killing each other. And that doesn't really seem to be much of a surprise to anybody else 
within this world the deeper that you go. For me, I think it's been a little bit of a case of diminishing returns across the course of the entire series. And maybe we can talk about that a little bit because for me, there's always going to be a little bit of discomfort with the level of gun violence. And I do appreciate that chapter four kind of feels like it's raining back on that impulse a little bit, but there's still, um, I don't know, like I admire the level of stunt work that these movies are for, because these are first and foremost a showcase for just jaw dropping stunt work and action. Um, but at the same time, I, there's this level of discomfort. I think I have, with just revenge flicks in general. And I Mm. get the point of the movies just kind of showing how the further you go on that quest for revenge, the more tangled up you're going to be in it. And I don't think that that's necessarily a moral that the movie is trying to impart by any stretch, but it is something that is on the John Wick franchise's mind. And I think once you've been tangled up into that knot far enough, I tend to lose sight of the thread and I'm only really able to see the knot, if that makes sense. So that's one of the things that I have trouble with. So I really appreciate the first one. I think number two might actually be my favorite out of the series, but there are sequences in number four that do give it a run for its money. Yeah, it's uh, we can we can get into some of the specific sequences later. There's like just ballet it's ballet yes. <laughs> um but uh i think for me three is the movie that crystallizes a lot of the things that i like about the john wick movies the best in hmm. terms of like you're really getting into the meat and potatoes of how this world works we're introducing new and weird rules and structures around it that still make sense with what we've seen but kind of take it to a new level um we get a sense of like the codes that have been broken uh, what that means in a systemic sense and kind of the threat that john wick poses as as a concept basically um mm. which is then followed up on in four um and i think you also get a a stronger sense of um to use a word that gets repeated throughout John Wick 3, um, consequences yes. <laughs> uh, for, for John specifically. Um, like this is the road that's led you to this point. This is like you're you're on you're on your way to what will be the darkest point in your journey. Mm-hmm. And basically in some way you have created the mess that is around you, but also the system has helped create the mess that um, that that built you essentially. Oh, man, let's talk about some of those individual performances, because for me, like Keanu Reeves is Keanu Reeves and I love him dearly and I'm always going to appreciate him, especially as a physical actor. He just moves in a way that I never fully expect him to be able to do. And he's also just the best at what he does. But for me, in Chapter 4, I think Donnie Yen kind of stole the show, both in terms of acting and what he's doing with his dialogue and his delivery, but also and especially just how he moves around. So Donnie Yen is playing this character named Kane, who happens to be a blind swordsman. And he's an old friend of John Wick's who has been called in by the high table to do their dirty work, essentially. But the character is so ambivalent to his own mission, and he's so good at what he does that it's it's one of those character tricks where you know that the character is blind and yet he moves in a way that is still astounding and would be astounding, especially for a sighted person as well. Um, And I just, I really appreciate the way that he uses his sword, both as a cane for feeling his way around the room, just kind of tapping different objects, but also just the way that he moves his shoulders and he moves his feet. I don't know. it, It really felt like he was kind of the, the heart and also the sense of humor of this movie in a way that I wasn't fully expecting. So for me, he kind of ran away with the rest of chapter four. Yeah, no, I agree. I think his character is really interesting too. Um, and in, in terms of being, he's, he's a little bit conflicted. So um, Kane and John have a past and it was a good past. It was not mm-hmm. uh, like they, they were friends. And so the fact that he's being called in to now dispatch John makes things a little more difficult. It's not really a situation that he wants to be in, ideally. Um, mm-hmm. But there's this interesting, again, like systemically speaking, there's an interesting kind of uh, spectrum of people's relationships to the system in which they operate. And Keynes is very much like, I want to be of service, so I will be of service. Um, and this is the job that you've given me to do, and I'm going to do it, um, even though he doesn't want to necessarily. And then 
toward the end that changes a little bit but um physically it just is like as I mentioned before it's ballet like watching him yes. move is just like watching watching someone dance it's beautiful it's incredibly graceful um it reminded me a little bit of uh his performance in Rogue One which was also um, mm. he's also playing a blind person there with incredible fighting skills um, yes. this is a little bit different than that because he's not like guiding himself around via the force but it's still really impressive and cool and when he and Keanu are on screen together fighting each other like it's it's really really something to see mm-hmm. yeah absolutely yeah and I, I think one of the things that I appreciated about chapter four was that underlining of that sense of duty versus um, doing what it is that you want to do. And it feels like it's in service of something that is completely predatory and and awful for all of the characters involved, including the, the ones on the high table. But I think that does get a little bit at that moral code that you were touching on earlier, where um, the world that these characters live in is so black and white, so governed by rules and regulations that there is absolutely no wiggle room. Like once you're in it, you're in it for life and you're stuck there. And I find Kane's approach to that world as feeling a sense of obligation and duty, not towards the high table, but towards his daughter, who he has joined the high table service specifically to protect. He's never really going to be able to see her again. She's not supposed to be able to see him again either. And yet he continues on in service, not towards the high table, but for her, because he's living for a higher ideal. And it feels like an interesting inverse of the character of John Wick himself, who's really only back in this life because the only things that were tying him to the world outside are gone and were taken away from him prematurely, namely his wife and then the puppy that she gifted him after she died. And so, I don't know, it feels Kane's personal journey to me feels almost a little bit less empty than John's, even though John Mm. is the central character in the film, because Kane actually has something to live for that he's living to protect. And John has absolutely nothing left to lose. So he's going to keep going down into those darker circles of what it is that the high table requires of him because he doesn't have anything besides himself to give up. And he's already given that up anyway does that make sense yeah no i think i think it makes total sense um i think if yeah if anything this is like it's it is hard to tell after a certain point why it is we're rooting for john yes (laughs) in four um and i think the movie understands that too um after a certain point um when there are like questions of um, personal sacrifice and if it comes down to it, which of the two of us should die, there's like a pretty solid conversation about, you know, you don't really have anything left to live for as dark Mm -hmm. as that is. Um, But it also just kind of becomes, I think an interesting commentary on um, revenge stories that get that far, which is that like you lose so much of yourself and so much of your identity that by the end of it, you're not the person that you started off as, and you're coming to terms with kind of the darker elements of who you actually are. And some of those things might not be very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that I think gets at my tenuous relationship, I think, with revenge movies in general. I like a few of them. Like, I love the Kill Bill movies in particular. And like I said, I, I like the first John Wick quite a bit, but I think it's that delving into the darkness and for me maybe it's because with chapter three the film is so obsessed with the rules and the ways that that world works that I tend to lose sight of the personal stakes for John himself and maybe that's Mm -hmm. just my read on it but it felt as though the movie was so focused on setting up those um, rules and the outside world and the fact that there's an arbiter who's here to like govern all of crime and make sure that everybody does crime the right way. Um, I think for me, that's where I kind of lost it because John is still there and he's still a force of nature that everybody else fears. But at this point, he's kind of gone beyond just being a man and he's more of a symbol. And we're still sort Mm -hmm. of supposed to root for that symbol, but we're supposed to feel bad about rooting for him at the same time. And for me, I think that message gets a little bit muddled. So I'm curious to know how and why that 
part of the story works so well for you? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, and I, I think I, in the John Wick movies in general, I, I tend to lean toward the systemic end of it just in terms of really appreciating the world building of it. Um, mm. But I think it does lead into four where um, Bill Skarsgård's character, the Marquis, who's kind of the main baddie this time out, uh, says that he not only wants to destroy John Wick, but he wants to destroy the idea of John Wick. So mm. I think by that point, he's, yeah, he's becoming less of a person and more of a concept more of a, a pointer at the fact that there are certain elements of the high table that do not work um and there are certain things that um like you can only kill so many people right like you can only keep mm -hmm. killing so many of your own people before you realize that you just have to build it back up um and that nothing really works in the first place mm -hmm. so i feel like it's yeah, he's, he's becoming kind of an abstraction. He's becoming less and less of a person and more and more of just like kind of this rage machine that wants to destroy this thing that is ostensibly responsible for putting him in the situation he was in in the first film in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, like having to leave it and then having had any kind of relationship with people who could come and ruin that for him. Um, which by that point, I don't know. Yeah, it, it it kind of becomes its own weird circular logic because you're just like, well, why are we here? <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's funny because in the first movie, especially, he's referred to ex almost exclusively as the Baba Yaga or the boogeyman. And he's mm -hmm. that abstract idea in the first film as well. But I think because we get to know him first as a man and then as the idea that we're supposed to be so afraid of, or at least that all of the other bad guys in the movie are supposed to be afraid of. I think that's right. where the tension really works for me is he has that past, but we also know him as a flesh and blood person. And I think as the films go on, his exploits get a little bit more and more over the top. As And that's mm -hmm. partly due to just the incredible amount of stunt work and the fact that the movies feel like they almost need to one-up themselves in order to be able to keep bringing in audiences. Um, but here I think that one upmanship also kind of falls into the trap of we've been here before and we've, we've trod that territory before. Mm. And maybe it has a little bit to do with like different models of revenge. So we were talking about the John Wick movies kind of off mic and you'd mentioned this idea that um, somebody else had brought up where the first John Wick is this idea of like, what is it? I did this to me. And then the second one is you did this to you. Um, I think, let me, yeah, let me look at it. So this is like, this is the theory kind of put forth by uh, Mikey Newman, who is a, uh, mm -hmm. a video creator and has done these really excellent essays on, uh, on the John Wick films. We'll link to um, those in the show notes if you're interested. Yes. In those yeah. So the first one he frames as you did this to you, um, which is like your past created these consequences and you created more violence in order to feel better about the loss that you incurred. Um, two is I did this to me, which uh, I interpret as kind of maybe what I thought was my past is actually an unavoidable part of myself. And I created these consequences for myself and other people. Mm -hmm. um, and three being we did this to us, which is um, both John's allies realizing the kind of harm that they have received by helping him um, with very little payoff and uh, the, the high table itself realizing that this is a system that created this unstoppable force and now has to reckon with the problem that it has created for itself. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And it's, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's really complex, but I think these are ideas that I really like and I think they're worth unpacking. Yeah, they definitely are. Um, I think one of the things that I'm trying to suss out though is where chapter four kind of fits into all of this because this is yeah. kind of it feels like a culmination of the story in a way that none of the other movies really fully feel like there's always something more for john to do at the end of each film and this one yeah. um without giving anything away does feel like there is kind of a sense of finality to it like this is this is john wick's last ride kind of thing and so to me it almost feels like a synthesis of those three ideas, but it doesn't quite mm. map fully mm -hmm. neatly. And I'm not entirely sure if that's just because of the scale of this thing, because this movie is two hours and 45 minutes long. It's very um, long, yeah. And I suspect that part of it is once you hit that length and once you hit the point where the movie has action sequences that are literally about as long as your typical feature length action movie <laughs> without any of the... Um, 
any of the exposition or any of the breathing space that a typical action movie would afford you. I think once you get to that point, it's less about the I and the me and the we about the revenge. And it's just about how that revenge is carried out, Mm -hmm. um, kind of the logistics of it. And the way that that manifests in the John Wick universe is kind of boiling everything down to the most simple parts, which is to say, um, we're going to do nothing but nonstop action here until it's time for everybody to stop and take a breath. And then we're just going to have like a good old fashioned duel about it, I suppose. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, I like the idea that it's kind of a synthesis of all of those things. I think there's also an element that we may have finally arrived at. I did this to you, hmm. um, which is like just we're going to burn down the entire system. My the personal consequences for me no longer matter. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to try as much as I can to keep my allies out of it, but also I am hell-bent and hell-focused on just this one particular task that I am going to carry out, and anybody who gets in my way is going to get burned. Um, so the whole thing just gets burned down to the ground. Yeah, which feels appropriate for the John Wick movies, especially because when you're dealing in a world that's this rigid and this focused on rules and regulations and you have to belong to a specific crime family in order to be able to issue a challenge to somebody else and if you give somebody a a coin then that means that they owe you a favor which usually means you know killing somebody else or doing a job that they don't want to do i think once you hit that point where you've demonstrated that that rigid power system is completely unsustainable there really is only one place to go which is to burn Mm -hmm. it down to the ground and Boy, this movie does that in pretty spectacular fashion, I think. It, yes, very much so. Um, are there fireworks at one point? I feel like there are. I might I, be imagining that. There may or may not be flames. I don't think we can say that mm-hmm. they are fireworks fully, but there are some pyrotechnics yeah. involved yeah. Um, with yeah. some of the gunplay. Okay. So um, I don't know. What else haven't we covered with this movie? I feel like it's kind of quippy in a way that some of the other ones aren't. Like the first film mm-hmm. has a very dry sense of humor And as the world gets built out through chapters two and chapters three, it kind of feels like it gets a little bit more grand and mythic. And here Mm -hmm. it felt as though Keanu Reeves doesn't say very much in this movie at all. In fact, I'd be surprised if he says more than maybe 150 words and about Mm -hmm. a quarter of them are him just saying, yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, we're going to do this. A lot of single word lines, yeah. yeah. But for every other character, it feels as though a lot of those lines are written in order to be extremely quotable. And for me, that doesn't quite work because you can sort of feel the writers getting a little bit sweaty trying to make those lines quotable. Um, Mm -hmm. But I don't know, does that fit into kind of the mythic template for you where we're talking about those structures and seeing them kind of open-facedly? I think it does um like one of one of the elements that i liked the most about uh three was uh mark dacascos's character uh mm. zero yes um who they yeah they had the big fight at the end and it turns out he's like a huge fan of john's and john just looks at him like what is wrong with you dude um <laughs> if anything i feel like four leans more into that um not in a way that feels overly gimmicky but just looking for opportunities to kind of have interactions on that level mm. um there's a little more, there's, I think there's a lot of discussion about, yeah, we've talked about duty. I think legacy is another one, mm-hmm. um, like wanting to kill the idea of John Wick. Um, I feel like this movie mentions the word family about as much as the previous one mentioned the word consequences, which I think is worth mm-hmm. noting. Um, and there are some direct family ties uh, between some of the characters that I think are, it, it looks like they're hinting at potentially carrying on some of those stories. Um one of them being uh, the relationship between uh, Rina Sawayama and uh, Hiroyuki Sanada, who are father and daughter in this movie. And he has a kind of previous relationship with John that carries some consequences. And um, Akira, the daughter, is uh, interested in kind of carrying out her own version of justice later on in the film. Hmm. Yeah, maybe there's a bit of a theme of kind of interconnectedness of people here, too, because Mm. John has to join a crime family in order to be able to carry out his goals. And that being able to join that family involves some sacrifice on his part and then also um, basically acting as a protector for that family or at least like taking on an additional piece of responsibility for something 
for that family before they're willing to accept him into their ranks. So I think there's something to that of the building on the consequences, but it's not all personal consequences, which is something that I think I do appreciate about the John Wick movies, because so often action movies are so focused on the single protagonist who is the only person who can carry out their vision Mm -hmm. or carry out their mission. Um, And nobody else, like none of the other consequences, not the body count, not the destruction in their wake, like literally none of it really truly matters because what matters is the emotional journey of the person who is at the heart of that action movie. Mm -hmm. And I think here the thing that does work for me is the acknowledgement that there's always going to be somebody else just around the corner who is also affected by these actions. Um, Like we haven't even gotten into the entirety of all of the cast because it is a very large cast, but there is, there are people who are still reeling from the consequences of something that happened two, even three movies ago, just because they have to deal with the fallout of what John did when he first re-entered this world of crime. And some of that is just the natural consequences of we're all under the high table, so we're all interconnected anyway. But I do appreciate that the movie is willing to take a moment from the punches and to recognize that these characters have pasts even beyond the movies that we've seen John in. And they have histories together. And those histories don't stop just because the fighting has started. Mm, I like that. Yeah, I think there's there's a growing sense uh, thematically. Um, I mean, I guess you could say that as humans, we are all under the high table. Oh, ho, ho. <laughs> um, but uh, the idea that as much as I think John would like to be acting alone, I think John would like to be the the lone gunman at this point, I think especially because he's created a lot of harm for other people and he would like to minimize that as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's the idea that nobody acts alone and nobody suffers alone. Um, mm. And I feel like we see the culmination of that in this movie, maybe a little more than some of the others. I feel like we've maybe kind of been ramping up to a larger, grander opera of like what consequences look like for um, for the people that we love, for the people who are on the sidelines um, and for the people who help us along the way. Mm. Yeah, Both for I good like and that. for ill. Yeah, yeah. I like that. So John Wick Chapter Four, worth it? Oh yes, very much so. Yeah, see it on a see it on a big screen. See it on the biggest screen possible. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you there. That's an endorsement from us, uh, listeners. We want to know what you think about John Wick Chapter Four, which is out in theaters this very weekend. You can tweet at us at cbeliefpod. You can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com, or you can head over to our Letterboxd account, which is also Pod. Let us know what you thought about John Wick on that Letterboxd entry, and we look forward to hearing your thoughts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So now we're going to go to the conversation, which is the part of the show where we hear what all you listeners out there have been thinking about the movies that we've been talking about. So every week I ask a question over on Twitter about a topic that is related to the movies that we're discussing on that week's episode. So this week we wanted to know, who's your favorite action star? Let's keep it nice and simple. Um, And Abby, we heard back from Kyle Hip who responded with Harrison Ford by a mile, which honestly, you can't really go wrong with that pick. That's yeah, that's, I think that's a really good answer. Um, (laughs) I think personally, I, so I've, I've gotten really into um, Hong Kong action films in the last few years. Um, My favorite one of these being uh, hard boiled, which I think I had initially pitched as our our watch list segment, but it's really hard to find. Um, Mm -hmm. It's, if you can find it in in physical format, um, as I did at uh, Half Price Books with a $5 used DVD, please pick it up. It's great. Um, but I think uh, Chow Yun-Fat throughout that movie and his his other collaborations with John Woo is just, it's he's astounding. Um, he's just got charm to spare and um, can carry out 
just immense feats of uh, fight choreography um, in just kind of escalatingly insane ways that if you love stuff like John Wick, this is like, this is sort of the the, the primordial ooze from which those movies came. <laughs> um, and it's, uh, I promise it's more it's more enjoyable than primordial ooze, but they're yeah they're great. He's great in them. Um, Tony Leung maybe a close second uh, for the same reasons. Oh, I love Tony Leung. I love Chow Yun Fat. Um, I'm really bummed that we weren't able to talk about Hard Boiled for the podcast this week. So I'm definitely going to be seeking out a physical copy so that I can catch up with that movie as well. So listeners, that's uh, two watch list picks for the price of one. Um, <laughs> as for me, I mean, Keanu Reeves is probably my absolute favorite action star just because specifically because of the way that he moves and also um, because of the Matrix movies. I just love him in those specifically. But if we're going for a more recent pick um, and we're talking about Hong Kong action stars, I mean, Michelle Yeoh is incredible. And if you have not seen everything everywhere all at once yet that's a really good introduction to her as an actor because she gets to be funny and caring and also just a really good action star at the same time and you can kind of feel the weight of all of that experience and the way that she moves her wrists um so i love her i need to catch up with some of her earlier work but i've seen plenty of clips of some of those uh, action sequences too so listeners if you're looking for a taste of her work um, just go look up the action scene from Yes, Madam, where um, oh, yeah. <laughs> she just knocks a bunch of people through a lot of uh, glass. It's a glorious clip um, and a really fun scene. And she's just a joy to watch in movement. So and now we're going to go to the watch list, which is the part of the show where one host picks a movie that the other host has not seen. Um, and then we talk about it. So because Abby is guesting on this episode she chose a movie to pair with John Wick Chapter 4, and the movie you chose, which was not hard-boiled, um, ended up being The Warriors, directed by Walter Hill. And it is 1979, New York City. Gang leader Cyrus has a dream of uniting all the street gangs and taking control, but his dream is snuffed out when he's assassinated at a rally in the Bronx on his own turf. Another gang, the Warriors from Coney Island, are framed for the assassination, and soon they're being hunted by every other gang in the city as they fight their way back to their own home turf. So, Abby, I think I can see some of the common DNA between this and John Wick Chapter 4, but I'm curious to know why you picked this movie in particular. Um, Well, one is because I absolutely love this movie. Um, And I will always look for an excuse to show people movies they haven't seen that I love. Um, But also, uh, this movie gets directly referenced in John Wick Chapter 4. There's Mm -hmm. a pretty long sequence near the end that uh, borrows directly from uh, Lynn Thigpen's character, uh, the DJ on the radio, speaking into the microphone, um, and also uses the same first track that she plays, which Mm -hmm. is Nowhere to Run. Um, So when that happened in the theater, uh, my friend who I was watching... Uh, the movie with and I just looked at each other and we were like oh my god can you believe it um <laughs> but then also uh in re-watching it to discuss it with you I was really uh very pleasantly surprised uh and impressed by how how much common DNA this movie shares with the John Wick series mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the format like there's a lot of running and hiding uh, there's a, a pretty big emphasis on uh codes of behavior, particularly related to crime and mm-hmm. what happens when those codes don't work. Um, there's also uh, a big love for um, distinctly dressed baddies that yes. I love in both of these movies, um, <laughs> where you can always tell uh, who the good guys are and who the bad guys are, because the bad guys have a wide variety of costumes yes. uh, and the warriors have one. So it's it's very easy to tell who's fighting who and where they're from. And it kind of becomes this fun little constellation of all of the different gangs from all across New York and the various like fighting styles, superpowers and costumes that they that they bring to each of the fights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the things that I was struck by when I was watching this movie was just how focused it is. Like, it feels a little bit shaggy because you see a lot of different neighborhoods and boroughs across New York City. You see a lot of different gangs. But 
this brunt of the story is entirely the same. The warriors just need to get home. And so I love that it's so focused on that drive and that desire to get out of a bad situation and to get back to their home turf. And they just keep running into different obstacles along the way. They get thwarted by other people. They get thwarted by their own terrible impulses. Um, And all at once, like, the film is just so focused on what those characters need and we understand what all of them need and we understand when their individual needs are kind of at odds with what the rest of the group needs as well. There's there's a pretty strong emphasis on um, the interpersonal relationships within the gang and then there's also a strong emphasis on the ways that these different characters kind of approach problem solving. So one of the things that I loved as we get introduced to the different members of the Warriors is that it's kind of intercut between the opening titles and we hear each of them talking to their leader about why they need to go to this big rally at the middle of the city off their home turf, why they need to do it without their weapons. Like none of them fully understand what's going on and we still get to understand how and why each of these characters would be motivated to do something. So we meet kind of the baby of the group and he's terrified of the situation and he doesn't want to get into a fight. We meet another guy who's kind of a womanizer and he's interested in just meeting girls. And so he's hopeful that that's what's going to be there at this rally. And we get a sense of the different levels of duty and obligation that these different characters feel towards each other as they're making their way both to the rally and then as they're trying to get back home before they realize just how bad the situation is in um, that they're in. So I kind of saw a little bit of that common DNA between John Wick chapter four and this one too, because there really is kind of a familial bond between these characters. And that doesn't mean that they all like each other perfectly, but they do feel those ties of, obligation and duty to get each other home safe even when they think that the other characters are being really dumb yeah, yeah. and there's also um in in thinking about it just the the source material for this is a novel which i believe is based on a greek epic um <laughs> about yeah uh warriors who are in this situation and trying to get home and are stranded um and the uh, the john wick movies also have like the the first two especially have a lot of Greek mythology iconography. Um, Mikey Newman's videos have a lot of really interesting thoughts on um, the kind of godhood representations and uh, Greek pantheon stuff that that shows up in one and two as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And this one, I don't feel like there's so much of the on-screen symbolism, but the movie doesn't really need it because it's not really Mm -hmm. interested in any of that. It's just interested in that we got to get home and we're going to meet as many colorful characters on the way as we possibly can. And when I say we meet a bunch of colorful characters, that kind of sounds as though there's a lot of, you know, side quests or something like we're watching a D&D campaign. And that's not remotely it at all. The movie is very tightly focused on the thoughts and the experiences of the characters in The Warriors. So every time another colorfully dressed person steps out of the shadows, it's pretty entertaining because I appreciate just how bright and colorful and out there some of these costumes are. Like there's, there's a gang of mime baseball players, which I love, but they're menacing. And the movie manages to take these very out there costumes and characterizations and these pretty thin sketches of characters, I think. And it's still able to turn them into something genuinely scary or genuinely unsettling. Mm -hmm. And I admire it for that because it's not othering any of these characters necessarily, but it is taking the time to establish like why they would still be scary to a group of boys from Coney Island who are far away from anything that they're familiar with. Yeah. Yeah. I think the movie does a really good job of setting up just how far out these guys are, how some of Mm -hmm. them have never actually left Coney Island. Um, The youngest guy in the group has a lot of trouble deciphering the subway map, which, you know, tells us very efficiently that he's never ridden the subway before, Mm -hmm. um, or at least not very often. And uh, there's also there's also these really interesting moments of vulnerability that pop up throughout Mm -hmm. where um, you just get a sense of how scared these guys are, like at their core, like they are, some of them are really diplomatic, some of them are real big blowhards. Um, 
but there's just this sense of like trying to figure out where you fit in the hierarchy of gangs. Um, there's a lot of discussion about like, yeah, I've heard of the Warriors, they're a hard outfit. Like you want to be known as a hard outfit. Um, mm -hmm. At one point they come across a group called the Orphans and there are a lot of them, but they're so low on the totem pole that they weren't even invited to the Conclave. And so they just get in trouble for walking through their neighborhood. Um, and those guys are, I think, menacing in a way that like you can tell they fight dirty, um, <laughs> which mm -hmm. is probably why they didn't get invited. Uh, but uh, there's a there's a moment where uh, Ajax, James Remar's character, um, who's like, who's so young, just incredibly young in this movie, but um, he tries to make it with a woman on a park bench who turns out to be an undercover cop um, and he gets arrested. And the moment that he is arrested and just looks up at the cops, like the look on his face is just like, we see him go from like this macho posturing dude, which he's been pretty much all the way up until this point mm -hmm. to somebody who looks genuinely afraid. Like he looks like a scared little boy. And I think that's, I, I just think that's a really interesting transition. And there's a lot of there's a lot of commentary throughout this about just people who I think are they like they grew up in really tough situations and really dire straits and they grew up learning how to fight and they grew up being very territorial. And when that territory and when that honor is threatened, basically everything goes out the window. And there's there's anger, but there's also a lot of fear involved as well. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things I appreciated the most is that the movie isn't trying to moralize about any of these characters. Mm -hmm. And it's also not trying to valorize anything that they do. Like, when Ajax goes after the woman on the park bench, it's a genuinely ugly and unsettling scene because that's what he's doing. And there's consequences for the decision that he makes, but I don't think that the movie is condoning anything that he's doing either. And it's not just because of the punitive justice of the law that's about to descend on him. Um, I don't know. It's, it's a tricky balance, I think, to make a character like him sympathetic. And I think mm -hmm. it manages to do it without making any excuses for any of his behavior. And I feel like that's the case for the vast majority of the characters that we see on screen as well, which is pretty remarkable given that this is a movie that is about gang violence and about kids kind of running around and, and wreaking havoc. But it doesn't feel like it's just making a movie about, oh, you know, the kids these days, they're nothing but trouble. And it's also like it's it's not othering and it's also not excusing and mm -hmm. it's also taking their hopes and their fears especially their fears at face value and treating them very seriously even when they're facing off against i don't know someone in in my makeup or on a set of roller <laughs> yeah. skates and um i don't know i was kind of struck by it because it's a very even-handed approach where we're so deep into the heads of these characters that when the cops start to approach on the subway, like my heart started racing as well because yeah. I knew that this meant nothing good for any of these kids. Yeah, I think it. Um, there you see a few people who are outside, like outside of the cops and outside of the gangs, mm -hmm. but you don't see many of them. And I think that's a that's a large part of it is that Walter Hill kind of creates this world that is for these people. This is this is the world. This is the rules. This is how you survive in that world. Mm -hmm. And anytime somebody from the outside comes into that, it's either a threat, like a direct threat in the form of the cops, or um, in a later case of like a couple of uh, kids coming home from prom who are like all dressed up and look nice versus uh, Swan and his uh, sort of kind of love interest who both look just super grimy and tired, mm -hmm. um, a reminder of kind of where they are socially outside of their hierarchy within, within the gang. Um, and so neither of them are good. Um, I also think it's really interesting that uh, that Walter Hill uh, gives us a Christ figure who essentially, I mean, is it cool that he wanted to create a peaceful conclave? Absolutely. But his end goal was basically to own the streets of New York City in like mob style justice, which. Yeah, not ideal. Not great. Um, <laughs> so like, I kind of see where you're coming from. And I think the character of Cyrus does have sort of this mystical aura about him that I think is meant to seem Christ-like. Um, mm -hmm. But. It, and I think within the world that he's created, that makes sense. Like giving giving hope to the hopeless, empowering the people who are on the lowest rungs and, you know, telling them how we've all been fighting for 10 square feet of turf and mm -hmm. the man has been keeping us down. So really all we need to do is join our forces and we can have everything we've ever wanted. 
Um, <laughs> I think there's I think there's something to that. Um, so within the world of the film, I think it works. Um, if you remove it from that context, we start to have problems. Um, yes. But I still think it's a really interesting idea. Yeah, it definitely is. And I kind of want to go back to that couple, um, the the prom couples that uh, mm. get onto the subway as well. And then they sit across from Swan, who's played by Michael Beck, and from Mercy, who's played by Deborah Van Valkenburg. And I love that scene because so much of the action that happens up until that point is fairly over the top. It's fairly intense. It, the movie doesn't really linger on any of it, but there is kind of this heightened sense of um, a little bit of choreography and a little bit of of tension and kind of raising the stakes by forcing everybody to slow down a little bit so you can see the cops coming before anybody else does. And this scene is underplayed and it's played so straight because this these two couples who get on the train after the prom sit down across the aisle from Swan and from Mercy and they kind of look Swan and Mercy up and down, mostly Mercy. And you can see the dirt on her toes um, from running around New York City all night. You can see the cuts on Swan's cheeks. And Mercy feels very self-conscious sitting in front of these two couples who are, you know, dressed to the nines. They're clearly having, like, the best night of their lives so far. And she starts to try to fix her hair. And then Swan stops her from doing it. And I love that moment because there's a level of he's he's affording her a level of dignity without her having to feel self-conscious. Or he's essentially telling her, like, you do not need to feel self-conscious because you are the person who belongs here. And these other two characters don't. And I think the prom goers really feel almost like aliens who have kind of crash landed on Earth mm -hmm. at this moment because they're so outside of the experience of any of the other characters up until this point. And the prom goers are so uh, unsettled that they just immediately pick up and leave as soon as they get to the next stop. But I love that the movie takes a moment to get outside of the warrior's experience and kind of give us a chance to see them through the prom goers' eyes and then snaps us right back into the warrior's experience and demonstrates that, oh, no, these kids aren't kids who are supposed to be gawked at. This is reality for them and this is actually life and death. And they're going to face that potential life or death with the dignity that they have, because that's all that they have. Yeah, no, I think that's a great interpretation. Um, and the fact mm -hmm. that the prom goers drop a corsage on their way out of the train, and then Swan mm -hmm. picks it up and gives it to Mercy later, which is a genuinely sweet move. Um, but then he also uh, kind of couches it with, like, I hate seeing anything go to waste. Which <laughs> yeah. I think could kind of have a double meaning, right? Because he's been, up until, like, the point where the prom kids show up, he has not been the nicest to Mercy, um, who mm -hmm. is a prostitute and um, or sex worker. Mm -hmm. And he has been um, really uh, unkind to her about that um, and mm -hmm. not treating it as a valid line of work. Uh, I think at one point he says, why don't you just tie a mattress to your back, which is horrible. That is a horrible thing to say to another person. Mm -hmm. um, but I think from that point on, you have that moment of like, you do belong here. You are part of us. Mm -hmm. um, I hate seeing something go to waste in that, like, don't throw yourself away. Um, mm -hmm. You are, you are of worth. Um, but also like, I'm a dude and I can't always express my feelings purely. So here are some flowers that I picked up off the floor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's one of the points where the script really does work pretty well for the movie. For most of the film, I wasn't too interested in anything that the characters were saying because I was more interested in the rhythm of the action and the way that um, the editing works to kind of drive up that tension. Most of the times, I think the dialogue sort of brought it down a little bit, and maybe that's because it felt a little bit dated. But at that moment in time, I think I understood kind of where Swan in particular was coming from, because he is, I don't even know how old these characters are supposed to be, but they can't be mm -hmm. much older than like 16, 17, 18, at least in universe. Yeah. And yeah. so, yeah, like it makes sense that a bunch of teenage boys would not be able to communicate with each other, let alone with anybody else outside of their world. So, yeah, I, I do yeah. love that reading of him coming to understand that she's also got worth um, despite everything else that he said to her up until that point. It's it's a really lovely character note and it's kind of a it's a more subtle change for the rest of versus the rest of the movie, which I like. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, the rest of the movie is very much about pacing and editing, um, which there are some great edits in this, by the way. Um, oh yeah. 
the uh, the moment near the end where um, Luther, uh, David Patrick Kelly's character, shows up and does like the bottle quink. Mm-hmm. Um, which I'm curious, and so you had not seen this before. So when that noise started, did you know what it was, or were you like trying to figure it out? I was trying to figure out what the sound was. Um, yeah. I wasn't entirely sure until I saw it. And then I saw it and I was like, that's incredible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's some really good and interesting sound design in this movie too. Like there's a moment where the cops are approaching one of the subway cars that the warriors are hiding out on. And you just hear footsteps going talk, talk, talk. And it's heavier and louder than what you would expect to hear. But that just kind of amps up the menace and makes it feel even more amplified. So, um, yeah, that sound effect really worked for me because it wasn't what I was expecting. And then when I figured out what it even was, it also (laughs) wasn't anything that I was expecting. But there's so much menace there. I think earlier in the movie, somebody smashes a bottle so that they can use that as a weapon, too. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just a character being goofy with those props. It's a character taking something from his environment and sort of repurposing it towards his own ends in a way that I found like really menacing in a very surprising sort of way. Yeah, and the way that it cuts between like the car and the warriors and then finally to Luther and like it just is, it's so rhythmic and it matches the sound of the bottles perfectly. And it's just, yeah, I think my note was just like editing exclamation point, like that's what it's all about. That's great. Um, (laughs) Especially for a movie that is so focused on, um, yeah, focused on momentum and movement and um, just, yeah, kind of a, a, a fast, a fast pace between those two things. I feel like it's it's a really good example of, of how you can build tension that way. Yeah, I feel like if the movie had been focused on anything else, or if it had even been explicitly about any big important themes with capital letters, mm-hmm. I think that that momentum would have been kind of cut off at the knees. So I yeah. I really appreciate that there's just a very strong single point. There's a very strong motivation for our main characters. Everybody else is out to get them and they got to get home. And that's really all that you need in order for the movie to work. Like everything else is just kind of icing on the cake. It's a delicious cake. <laughs> it is a good cake. It's it's a little bit of a dirty cake. I think it got dropped in the street, but it's, it's still good. It's still good. Cake. It's still good. I hate to see anything <laughs> go to waste. Exactly. <laughs> so does this movie. So yeah, I, I really appreciated it. Thank you for sharing this one with me. Yeah, it's I, I knew it was a thing that you would probably like a lot. So I'm glad we both got to watch it together. It's got Sarah DNA stamped all over it, that's for sure. <laughs> well, Abby, thank you so much for coming on to Seeing and Believing. Um, where can listeners find you and where can they find your work? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Abby Olchesi, A-B-B-Y-O-L-C-E-S-E. Um, I have a link on there, I think, to my Substack, which is where I've been posting uh, my bylines as well as updates on the book that I'm working on. Um, I have a, a book uh, coming out through IVP that's a guide to movies to watch through the church liturgical year um, that should be hopefully tentatively out in 2024, but is still in the writing process. So um, the Substack is probably the best place to find out where I am in that process. I am definitely going to be keeping a close eye out for that because I'm looking forward to reading that book very, very much. So, yeah, thank you so much. That is going to do it for this week. Next week, we Kevin will be back. So he will return from his uh, shadowy assassin mission um, that he has been on for this week. So thank you again, Abby, for filling in for him there. Next week, we are going to be covering Tetris, which is hitting Apple TV Plus that Friday. Um, And then to pair with it, we're doing another watch list pick, but we're going to be doing one that is a Patreon pick. So Patreon subscribers um, are able to, if if they are at the $10 a month level, they can choose a movie for us to cover. Um, And so the movie Amadeus has been chosen by one Dave Welch, um, who may or may not be a relation. So we're going to be covering, (laughs) (laughs) we're going to be covering uh, Milos Forman's Amadeus, which I am very much looking forward to. If you want to watch along, it's available to rent on all of the usual suspects. Um, But that is going to do it for us this week. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Sarah Welch-Larson, and we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing.